0: In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, the story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power.
1: Señor Ministro. Where are Karen and Eduardo Guerrero? Where are
0: my Listen to Umo: Murder in Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of the Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book. and get lost in the daily book club.
1: My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist.
0: Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears.
1: Hello, welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Jane, co-host of Invisible Tears. I'm here with my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Jane. How's it going today? Oh, it's, it's going good it's going good. Good. So one of the things that we really wanted to do with the podcast was bring to light cold cases, Mm -hmm. unsolved cold cases. Yes. Um, That was was one of our goals along with mental health. Of course. So we go on regularly to the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit Mm -hmm. website. And we come across a case which kind of caught my attention because it's so local. Right. It's like... A town right next to me. Right. And a town right next to you. Exactly. And um, it's uh, in the Monadnock region of New Hampshire, um, Keene, Winchester, Mm -hmm. Fitzwilliams, Peterborough. Yep. So we came across this case. um, It was um, a case from 1987. Yep. And it was the case of... um, Judith Whitney, she was murdered Yes, in 1987. Her body was found in Winchester. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what intrigue does with this case was it's in the cold case unsolved cases on the website, Right. but yet we saw this little thing that said solved. Right, it said, it was so
0: odd, it said status solved. solved. But in the original posting on the... Um, Department of Justice website and we'll make sure and link that in the descriptions for you guys, actually all of the information where we're um, pulling from, like we always do. But so it said status solved, which we thought was odd because even at the end of the verbiage, it said that there was a person or a prime suspect. Um, And we had to actually go and search for the actual press release for them to, for the Department of Justice to explain why it's deemed solved. So we're actually going to be discussing a quote cold case that is a solved status. Yeah. And we'll explain a little bit a little bit further why it's why it has to actually
1: have that solved status. Yeah, because it's we started reading about the case. Yeah. And it was I mean, <sighs> I mean, I
0: have to be totally honest with you, especially having grown up for the most part grown up um so much around this area this is actually a case that is very well-known locally, and I do not think that any single person that I've ever spoken to has known that this case was actually solved. Yeah. They think it is still a cold case, and they think, I think that people, don't people actually inquire with you, Jane, and uh, ask if she's related to your attack? Uh, yes. Simply because of proximity.
1: Yes. Ha,
0: they, I've had people ask me a couple of times.
1: So let's talk about her case.
0: Yes. So let's talk about Judith. So on July 20th, 1987, Judith Whitney was reported missing to the Amherst Police Department in Amherst, Massachusetts. The investigation revealed that Judith, age 43 at the time, was last seen alive in Keene, New Hampshire on July 2nd of 87. Four months later, on November 8th, 1987, a hunter discovered Judith's body buried in a shallow grave in a wooded area off of Route 119 in Winchester, New Hampshire. So, a suspect was named called Edward Mayrand. At the time, he was 40. And what developed during the investigation and after the investigation, um, that Judith's initial disappearance, um, she was with him. He was the last person to see her by multiple witness accounts as well. And he was also found to be in possession of not just Judith's car, but her handgun and some of her other personal belongings. Yeah, a boombox. Yep. Um, However, the Department of Justice simply states that there wasn't enough evidence during the initial investigation that was uncovered to support an arrest for homicide. So none was made. And eventually, the case became inactive. Inactive? Like, (laughs) yep. (laughs)
1: Yep. How many cases have to become inactive?
0: Well, I mean, as we sit here, with it, because this is actually a really, really good um, slew of information that they actually provided in this press release. Um, Absolutely. There is actually a ton of information actually giving like a really good detailed timeline of all of the, all of the witnesses and all of the things that were found in relation to this case to, once Reading through all of this information, I have to be honest, I'm pretty pissed off that he wasn't actually charged. I understand from a law enforcement, I'm not a cop. I'm not somebody in law enforcement. I understand that they probably needed some other sort of evidence, um, probably forensics, but um, other lives could have been saved
1: as well. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. It's irritating. So the case becomes inactive. And then in 2010, the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit starts working together with the investigators from the Massachusetts State Police. Yep. Um, They decide to revive the investigation. Uh, Those efforts included sharing information concerning Judas' murder and the 1983 unsolved murder of Kathleen Denault, 25, she was murdered in Gardner, Mass. Yep. Gardner, Massachusetts. In June of 2011, the cold case unit was assisting the Massachusetts police in preparing a search warrant to obtain samples of this Edward Mayran's DNA. Yep. Then they found out Mayran was ill, terminally ill with cancer. A sample of his DNA was obtained and tested. But it wasn't until 2014 they were able to get the results back, revealing that his DNA was on the ligature used to strangle Kathleen Denault.
0: Yes. It took them three years. And now, mind you, when they obtained the warrant to collect his DNA... Um, And I know we haven't gone over the Denault case. We we will hear in a second. Um, But when they obtained that warrant to collect his DNA, it was 2011. He ended up passing away in 2011. I believe they actually obtained the warrant to collect his DNA because they knew he was going to die. Three years later, the results came back.
1: Yeah. So a little factual background. On July 20th, 1987, Judas ex-husband reported her missing Uh, after some investigation the police learned that judith met this mayran guy sometime around june of 87 they were supposed to go camping together and whitney told several acquaintances that she would be leaving amherst to go camping with mayran judith and mayran stayed at the valley green motel in keene new hampshire on july 1st and july 2nd that was confirmed that they checked in and paid cash for the room a local bartender saw judith and marian in the lounge um, on the evening of july 1st 1987. the same bartender saw the pair again the following day at a bank plaza um, they were withdrawing money from the atm the maid from the motel, also saw Whitney and Ramian together in her brown Ford Mustang on both July 1st and July 2nd. Yep. Um, Nobody saw her after July 2nd. On July 3rd, however, the same maid saw Mayrand driving Judith's car by himself. At 9 in the morning, she saw him throwing a brown shopping bag into the motel's dumpster. In making small talk, Marion referred to Whitney as his wife and told the maid that she had gone to visit relatives, but he didn't go because those relatives didn't like him, so he was going to visit friends. When she walked into the room, she noticed that both beds had not been slept in that night. Yep. So then July 14th in 87 judith nor mayran ever checked out of the room and they left all their belongings behind so the management eventually gave them all the the uh belongings to the police yep um the items included judith's clothes uh, mayran's clothes judith's purse and a spare set of car keys they did not include her 22 caliber handgun and a portable boom box which she was known to have carried either on her person or in her car at all times yep so in mid-july of 87 he was seen at the forest lake campground in winchester visiting friends and he was driving judas brown ford mustang on july 20th her mustang was found approximately 150 feet off of Collins Pond Road in Fitzwilliams. It was abandoned. Uh, The search turned up, no sign of Judith in the area. The car was locked, and when the police discovered it, um, her 22 caliber gun and boombox were not in it. However, there was an invoice from July 1st found in the car for the purchase of 500 rounds of 22 caliber ammunition.
0: Jane, when you read that passage about the Forest Lake campground in Winchester, I just got such massive chills. I mean, just to pause for a second, this is all really great detail, but just to pause for a second, the locations of where we're talking about is so freaking close to home for us. Crazy. We're literally recording in an office space that is two miles Two miles from the Valley Green Hotel in Keene, New Hampshire, we are yep. in Keene right now, And yep. this Forest Lake Campground. How often do you pass that campground Almost on every your day. way home? Exactly.
1: Almost every day.
0: It's it is that campground is how many how many miles would you approximately say it was from Gamarlos from where you were attacked?
1: Maybe five.
0: Maybe five miles along the same major road.
1: Yeah, it's on the the yep. the campground is on the same road as Gamarlos where I was attacked.
0: Yes. So just to, I just wanted to make sure and and note that, put a little bit of a personal touch on on this story. It's it's hitting really close to home right now.
1: (sighs) Most definitely is, in so many ways. Right. In so many ways. So that pretty much tells the story that he was in possession of her belongings. Right. He was the last one to see her alive.
0: Yep. He had her car.
1: He had her car.
0: Well, I mean, it was eventually found, uh, you know, abandoned. But he did have her car. Multiple witnesses witnessed him driving her car. Yep. So that kind of paints a story, but that's not enough
1: evidence. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's not enough evidence.
0: Because you know, mm. I don't know what is. And during this time, he was actually a fugitive. <laughs> Yeah, he had well. a warrant out for
1: his arrest. He had a warrant out for his arrest yep. for a violation of parole. Crossing state lines. Yep. He's supposed to stay in Massachusetts. He ended up coming to New Hampshire, and um, that was a violation of his parole. So he had an arrest warrant out for him. Um, they ended up finding him in Peterborough. Yep. That's where they uh, arrested him mm-hmm. at this apartment. And what did they find on him? What did they find on him? They during? found Judas' twenty-two caliber yep. handgun yep. and her boombox.
0: Yeah, yes. I believe the people that he was staying with, he had gifted them her jewelry too, as well. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, a Necklace and a watch.
0: Yep, which her, um, which her family later identified as hers. Yes, that's it's so infuriating.
1: So on November eighth, nineteen eighty-seven. Um, when Judith's body was discovered in Winchester by a hunter, her body was badly decomposed and buried in a shallow grave. The grave site was photographed and videotaped, and a number of items were collected from the grave. She had a sweater with a large piece torn from it Mm -hmm. and a blue rain slicker nearby with a drawstring missing. The decomposition was significant enough where the only way that they could identify her was through dental records. Yeah. The piece of the clothing torn from the sweater was tied into an open knot, and what appeared to be a missing drawstring from Judas Rain Slicker was also tied into an open knot. They were tied with a simple granny knot, and the size of the knot hole was consistent with the circumference of a woman's neck. So they're assuming that she was strangled with her piece of clothing and possibly this um, drawstring from her jacket.
0: Yes. Yeah. Because following an autopsy and a review of the forensic information that they collected, the medical examiner concluded in their final autopsy report that the cause of her death was asphyxia by ligature strangulation. And the manner of her death was then ruled a homicide. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode.
1: So this Mayran had a lengthy and violent criminal history. Relevant to this investigation, his history started with a conviction of rape in Warwick, Massachusetts in December of 75. Now, Warwick is right over the state line from Winchester, Yes, it, it is. borders Winchester. Yes, it does. New Hampshire. Yep. So that was in 75. Reports revealed that he met his female victim in a bar. Hmm. He then drove her to a remote area, punched her in the stomach, choked her with her own scarf yep. before he drove her to a nearby cemetery where he sexually assaulted her several times. Before sexually assaulting her, he told her, quote-unquote, I would let you go after, but you will go to the police, causing her to believe that she was going to be killed. Right. She only escaped by running naked from the car in the middle of an icy and rainy night through several hundred yards of dark woods towards a house and pounding on the door. I, I, can't, even I can't even imagine... imagine. I can't like either. How scared she must have been, but how brave of her! Exactly to escape and, and run like that,
0: and escape and run and try and fight. Because at that point, what do you what do you have What do you have left? Yeah. you don't have anything left to lose. And clearly, and by that statement, he was going to kill her. He was going to kill her. She and would I have believe- been a victim, exactly. And honestly, especially as we go through the rest of his violence—that's all I can call his life—she uh, would have been.
1: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Now, that was in 75. Yes. Um, he was convicted of rape and assault and sentenced to prison. He was out by the fall of 83. So he only served eight years. Yeah. So he was released on parole. And then in December of 83, he returned to prison for a vi- violation of parole. Yep. Yeah, he was being implicated in a burglary. Yeah. However... It was this period of his release in the fall of 83 that he committed another vicious crime and left behind evidence that would eventually lead to his identity as a Judas murderer. Right. So what happened was he got out in the fall of 83. He was back in jail by December of 83. On November 17th of 83, Kathleen Denault, 25, she was with him at a restaurant in Gardner. Yep. On November 18th, the very next day, her body was found not far from the restaurant. She was strangled with a piece of her own blouse, yep. which was ripped off, tied in a simple knot, and used as a literature to strangle her. Yep. Her body was adjacent to a furniture factory where he had just recently been fired from. <laughs>
0: So he was the last one seen with her. He was literally with her the night before or the night that she was murdered. Proximity. Yeah.
1: So he was questioned. He flatly denied that he even knew her mm-hmm. or even been out with a woman that evening. And then several days later, he was confronted with several witnesses' statements that he was seen with her, with Denault, mm-hmm. And he changed his story. Of course. Of course. If there's multiple
0: witnesses that can actually yeah. place you with her. Yeah, okay, then, then so I changed my story.
1: Then he admits to investigators that he had met Denault and had drinks with her, but then left her at the bar and headed home. Right. He was reincarcerated a month later for his parole violation. Mm-hmm. So he was out of jail Yep. for, what, a couple of months? Yep. And he murders again. Yep. So, okay, I see a serial killer. I see he's, he's a serial killer. Yeah, absolutely. He's, as, as soon as he gets out of jail, not even a couple of months, he's killing already. Yep.
0: Wow. Absolutely. And it's also interesting, too, that the, the, the periods of time that he actually ends up, like, in the midst that he actually ends up back in jail is be, only because of parole violations. Yeah. That's the only thing that they actually get to stick on him.
1: Yeah. So he has a violent crime history, Mm -hmm. charged with the rape of this other girl in Warwick, where he would have killed her had she not escaped. Yes. Then he's being questioned about Kathleen Denault. Yep. And yet he's not charged. Nope. (laughs) He's not charged in her murder. And now remember back to the
0: beginning of our story, the DNA from the Denault case is what actually ended up tying him
1: to Judas' case as as well. Absolutely. Yep. It is. Yep. But
0: that wasn't until 2014. I was going to say, yeah, but, but this is, you know, we're talking about days that are all in the 80s. Yeah. The, the whole looking at the DNA didn't actually come about until 2011, again, because he was dying. Yeah, exactly.
1: So he admitted that he had drinks with her. Um, then he's reincarnated for a parole violation. Uh, he remains in jail for an, another two and a half years until May of 1986. Then he transitions to a halfway house in Northampton, Mass. Mm -hmm. It was from this halfway house that he would later walk away and eventually meet Judith in June of 87.
0: Yeah, so he walked away from that halfway house. Yeah. And also, it's unclear, based off of the investigation, too, um, whether or not Judith actually knew That he had the record that he had.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, she, who knows? She probably didn't even know. Yeah. Um, Because she met him at AA meeting, which he was probably, I'm willing to put money on this, I hate to assume, but I bet he was court ordered to go to AA. sure, yep. To be in the halfway house. Right. And that's probably where he met her.
0: Yep, so it was actually more of like a treatment and a rehabilitation. Yep. Program that he was in.
1: Yep. So then in November of 1989, so this was two years after Judas' murder. Yep. Uh, he was charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm for taking and possessing Judas' weapon, her gun. Yep. Uh, no homicide charges were brought, given the evidence collected at that time. He was arrested in Montague on November 24th in 1989 uh, when the police attempted to interview him after his arrest for the felon in possession charge. He refused to speak. Mm -hmm. He eventually pled guilty and was sentenced to two and a half to five years. Now, he was sentenced not for Judith's death. Nope. He was sentenced for being a felon in possession of a firearm.
0: Yep, for having her gun.
1: For having it done, two and a half, two and a half to five years.
0: If he served, if he ended up serving the max for that, just to put it into perspective, that's only
1: three years less than he served for that brutal rape. Yeah, and then he was released on his minimum date, so he only served two and a half years. Yep. Um, while he was serving his time in New Hampshire State Prison, two inmates came forward claiming that he confessed to them that he had done in at least two people before, and that he had killed a woman in Massachusetts and another one in Keene. Mm-hmm. The inmates were interviewed and appeared credible, but their statements lacked any additional corroborative details. Yep. Are you serious? Yep. So so he's let out. After his release, he travels to Rhode Island. Gets out of the area. Gets out of the area. In 94, 1994, he met and killed Patricia Paquette in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. She was 46. Uh, she was reported missing on December eighth, nineteen 1994. Yeah. So that was, so in 89, he went in, served two and a half years, pretty much got out in 89, 90, 91, 92 maybe? 92,
0: yeah. So... so To be honest with you, I wonder what he did between like he doesn't have any cooling off periods, to be honest with you. I'm wondering what he did. We should actually do a little bit more research and look at what occurred um, in between and around 1992 and
1: 1994. Yeah. When he committed um, the murder of Patricia Paquette. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yep. So her body was found. She was reported missing December 8th of 94. Her body was found December 21st. Of that year, in a vacant house around the corner from where Marian had been staying. Yep. Similar to witnesses in the Whitney and DeNault cases, he was the last person seen with Paquette after they were drinking together in a neighborhood lounge. And her cause of death was asphyxiation. Her body was discovered dismembered, though, and stuffed inside several plastic garbage bags.
0: He's evolving.
1: He's evolving. Uh, Denault's body was found adjacent to Mayran's former place of work in Gardner. The way Mayran disposed of Paquette's body was different from Denult's mm-hmm. and Whitney's cases yep. and showed an escalation in his violent behavior and effort to conceal his criminal acts. So he was evolving, plus he was trying to Hide. Yes. Evidence.: Yep. way more than he had tried to hide evidence previously.
0: Yep. So yeah, so then Mayrin was actually arrested in New Haven, Connecticut in February of 1995 for Patricia Pocket's murder. He made several admissions to murdering Pockett and pled guilty to second-degree murder. He received a sentence which essentially resulted in 35 to 60 years in prison. So he was finally caught and arrested on one
1: and charged, and convicted. Yes, and um, the New Hampshire State Police contacted Rhode Island authorities about interviewing him about the death of Judy. Mm -hmm. However, he refused to speak to any other law enforcement authorities and was never interviewed.
0: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now, back to our episode... So he's finally convicted in '95, and at least he's behind bars and can't do and can't do any more harm, can't murder, and assault, and and um, do any more harm to anyone else. Fortunately, but it's a little bit weird to me. Do you find it odd, Jane? That I mean, he's convicted in '95 and i understand that authorities tried to contact and work with you know the Rhode Island authorities and and stuff like that but nothing really actually happened in the Whitney and Denault cases until 2010 when the cold case unit started looking at it yeah I, i'm just kind of wondering it's a, i mean that is a it's a 15 year gap yes it's 15 years yes so
1: yeah I don't think he's, was he ever really, he was not charged, ever charged, for Judas' murder. No, he was not. What, was he charged with Denote's murder?
0: I do not believe so. I believe he had already no. passed away.
1: Yes. Yep. Yes, because um, they received his DNA in 2011, but the DNA results didn't come back till 2014. So he was never charged for either one of those murders.
0: Yeah. So just to put it into perspective, the cold case unit, when they got the warrant to obtain the sample of his DNA, they state that was June of 2011, but he passed, Edward Mayrand passed away on June 29th of 2011. So he was never actually charged with yeah. Judy's death or with Donald's death. But when the DNA evidence did come back three years later, his DNA was on Donald.
1: Yeah. And because Donald's Evidence And Judith Whitney's evidence of how they found the bodies and the Mm -hmm. evidence that they found surrounding the the remains, they have um, concluded that he also murdered Judith.
0: Yes. So thus the reason why the status on the cold case website actually says solved. So nobody's going to be charged um, in those murders. They're just going to categorize it and deem it as solved because they knew who.
1: Yeah, it says, it is unclear whether Judith Whitney knew Marian was a fugitive before he killed her. What is clear is that her money, car, belongings were found on Marian and were given away by him less than 24 hours after she was last seen alive on July 2nd. The following day, Marian was driving her car, telling motel employees that she had gone to visit relatives. These inconsistent statements are compared to what Marianne told others about Whitney going to visit family and that they were a married couple, led to a reasonable inference that Marianne knew exactly what happened to Judith and was responsible for her death. Yep. It's it's just too bad that I, I feel that they had enough before the DNA to charge him with Judas death. Right. And they did have enough to charge him with Denult's death. Mm-hmm. Had they charged him with either one of those murders, mm-hmm. Paquette would have been alive. Right. I was gonna say the woman that followed it would have the Rhode been Island alive. lady would have been she would still be here.
0: Yep, she would still be alive. Actually, if they had um, kept him in, I'm trying to actually think about the timing. If they had made the violation of parole that he was serving stick
1: for longer,
0: then she would have been too. So
1: we thought that was interesting to read. It kind of pisses me off when I read it because we find this so much with so many cases in New Hampshire. Yeah. They have enough, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to convict, Right, but they don't convict. And what happens is these monsters continue to kill. And even escalate. And they escalate. And, you know, my question has always been, how much flippant evidence do you need right. to convict somebody? Right. I mean, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt not we need a confession right <laughs> you know or we need that piece of dna too yeah. i mean i mean what do they need to start solving these cases
0: i understand if if there really is very very little lack of evidence and it's really just like possibly like a couple of pieces of circumstantial evidence but I'm going to be totally honest with you. And again, I'm not trained in law enforcement. I'm not a cop. I'm not, you know, it seems to me with all of the information that this, this information literally came from the Department of Justice press release that ended up, you know, being published and essentially really gave validation to why the cold case was now being, you know, the status was being changed to solve. All the information that was divulged in that press release and again, we'll link it in the description, guys, so you can read it, too. There's a lot of evidence.
1: There is. There's a lot of evidence. And most of the report that we read was actually the New Hampshire co-case unit's final report mm-hmm. on these cases. Yep. And on Judas' case. Yep. And um, that's when they officially called it solved. Yep. I don't know. It's, it's so hard for me to process that. This man got away with so much stuff um, and so many murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he served time in jail, in and out, in and out, in and out. Mm-hmm. But how many lives could have been saved had he just been convicted with that first murder? And right. you know, another thing, you kind of wonder he will not admit to Judas murder, right? And I don't think he would. He admitted anything about Denault's murder, right? You kind of wonder how many others out there that he murdered. Right. How many other victims are out there that he murdered. Right. That we don't know about. And we're definitely going to um, look into it because he definitely has an M.O. I mean, the way he takes their clothing and wraps it around their their necks to kill them mm-hmm. with stri- you know, strangulation. He's strangling them with their own clothing. That's a specific M.O. And he's meeting them in bars. Mm -hmm. That's a specific M.O. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's other victims out there that he was just never connected to.
0: Right, so as I sit here and try and do the math about his age, so the first known rape and assault that he did end up doing time for in 75, so in 75 Edward Mayrand would have been 28. He would have been 28 years old. Now, based off of what he told that woman, I, I definitely think that if she hadn't have had the courage to actually run and be that brave um, to get away, I think she would have been killed. What did he do before then, before he was 28?
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I, just, I mean... My,
0: my mind just has to go there. You, you know gotta, what I
1: mean? got to kind of wonder, was she the first victim? And for him to say that to her, mm-hmm. and that was quote-unquote. Right. So that was a quote-unquote um, what he said to her, what she testified yep. in court. Yep. You kind of wonder, just by that statement alone, there had to be other victims. Yeah. There had to be other victims. And he was terrified to be caught, obviously, mm-hmm. because he would... He would rape and then kill them yeah he didn't want to be caught because right. he figured if he killed them he would have no witness um there right. would be nobody coming forward about the rape i there's there has to be others out there mm-hmm. because and strangulation that is such a that's so personal yeah it is that is so personal that is some serious anger because it takes what 4 to 8 minutes to actually strangle someone until they're dead really that is some serious anger that is some serious that is personal yeah that is
0: well and especially taking pieces of their own clothing, clothing. i mean that right that right that right there in and of itself is actually a signature yeah. It's very specific
1: yeah. to what um, to what he did with these. So crimes. I kind of wonder where is he from and what kind of life did he live and you know was he a, a product of child abuse or, or did he witness something horrible? I mean, not defending on what he did. Absolutely not. Right. Anybody that knows me, I could give a shit less what their what their childhood was. Um, you know, it doesn't give you a right to kill somebody. Right, um, but. You know didn't really see much about him right you know what were his triggers yeah anything like that but I find it hard to believe there weren't more victims me too because he Mm -hmm. was I mean he was out of jail for a month maybe yeah and and he killed the one in Gardner yeah (laughs) (laughs) a month (laughs) that's crazy oh what evil what a monster
0: I agree So those that are listening and are local and had always heard about Judy's case, I mean, just so you're aware, because... Again, I've talked with so many people that actually had asked us when they they knew that we were starting Invisible Tears and we were going to be talking about cold cases and missing persons cases and stuff like that, not just your case, Jane. So many People had mentioned her, probably at least five different, I had five different conversations about people asking about her case. And it wasn't until we started researching that we realized, oh, it's solved. Um, So yeah, so that is what gives the Status of solved on the cold case website is this type of situation. So it is solved because he was never able to be charged because he is
1: dead. I wonder if they keep that on the cold case website because they maybe think that there are other victims. Maybe. So other departments can look back on that. Yeah. Because you know, still now that I form. think about it. Yep. There's
0: still a tip form actually. So yes. in the, so that probably is the reason why they keep it out there. So yeah. So on her original posting on Judith Whitney's original posting on the cold case website, there is still, it actually still has the verbiage that, um, Edward Mayrand is the prime suspect in Judas murder. Um well now we know that it was it was him. He's no longer a suspect, but it does say help us solve this case and bring justice to the family of this victim. Use our tip form. So Yeah. Since there's still a tip form linked. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah.
1: Well, we thought we'd do this this case, even though it's solved. I wanted to talk about it quite yeah. a bit, especially because um it just angers me that should have been arrested with that first victim there's always with new hampshire there's always not enough evidence yeah why is that i don't know i
0: mean in one positive in the one positive light that i can actually think of when looking at this case um is that it actually goes to prove that a you know 20 some odd year old quote cold case literally on the cold case website can actually be solved yeah uh that is one shred of positivity yeah, I think I can a pull out of pull out of here. So yeah. but again, how much how much justice is actually there because he was never actually able to be charged. Yeah. It's just solved.
1: Yep, yeah, that's true. So well, thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Jane.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases.
1: If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for
0: that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in-person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the Contact Us section on the website with any questions, or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.